these topics are interesting. Trisha, why don't you start? What's my topic? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Wait, stop. Strike all of that. What's my topic? <laughs> you introduce it. I don't even you remember. Forgot, oh my God. You, so you, the, you, forg- you forgot what you were talking about? You know what, Jason, you're going first. Are you ready? I am ready. All Go right. So then, uh, I'm going to start this again. Right, here we go. Hi, welcome to Outrageous, our bi-weekly podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris. I'm in New York City, and I'm joined by my very best friends, Trisha in LA. Hello. And Jason in DC. Hey. I almost forgot your name for a second. <laughs> Sorry. No, I just, I, you know, I'm not used to, usually I only have like one very best friend, but now I'm back to having two. Um, now that you're back, uh, welcome back. Congratulations. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I want to just launch right into this because it, it was on my mind and I found out last night. So, uh, do you guys hear about Taylor Swift? Yes. She's like I did not. She, so, Taylor Swift in a lengthy Twitter post was like, oh, in the, given the last two years of some personal things and the things that are happening in, in the world, I can't not possibly vote for the Tennessee governor, uh, who is a Republican, who is the incumbent. And she goes on and on about how she stands for LGBTQ rights and women's rights and the rest of it, just coming off as like a fierce liberal Democrat. Um, and she encourages people to vote for the Democrat. And it was such a it was such a reversal. She used to be like jerk off material for white supremacists, and now they're gonna have to go back to Ann Coulter. Anyway, I was just thinking, wow, I just didn't see it coming. That's all. That's all I, I wanted to say. I don't know if it was even a reversal. I think she was pretty clear that she was just non-committal. And people projected a lot of things onto her. I guess. But then like you look at some of her material. I mean, the Kanye thing was unfortunate because it cast her in a certain light. Uh, and but she then, participated. But and then I think now that's... look at Kanye. Oh, must we? <laughs> that's true. That is a fascinating. Must wow, we? you put those together. Look at those two now. <laughs> wow, that's interesting. I mean, we don't have to look at him, but I'm just saying. I don't, right? look at him. I, I don't. I don't want to actually. I don't even care. I, there's nothing that Kanye has done or will do in the next ten minutes that is worth us putting up with anything. Saying I refuse to talk about Kanye West. I just. Oh, that's fine. He's he's a suffering individual, and I'm I'm done with yeah. that. Yep. So I, I wish him the best. Good luck. Um, how are you guys? Good. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate the actual gut check. You know, <laughs> that's great. We're taking that question very seriously. I know that. Well, that's actually good. Most of the time, you're just like, I'm fine. But you know, you know, when you ask a Jamaican if they're good, they go, "Not bad." That's what I like. <laughs> Not good, like, but not, not bad. bad. Not bad. <laughs> you know. <laughs> no one wants to admit that they're A-OK. Not bad. You know how it is. I, I, like I it. actually, I know someone, he's the CEO of a large nonprofit. He, every time anyone asks him how he's doing, he always says never better. But if I haven't talked to him for well, a while. Well, that just seems like a fake now, though. Well, no, much. but if I haven't talked to him for a while, I'll forget that he has that stock response. So <laughs> I'll be like, hey, how are you? And he's like, never better. And I'm like, oh, what happened? And he's like, oh, no, that's just what I always say. I just got out of a really bad meeting. Like, 
<laughs> so he says it, and you're like, oh, what good news do you have to share? He's like, none. No, I just, none, yeah. I say it to make myself feel better. <laughs> that, that's pretty much – he told me he he, has, he tries to force himself to be positive. So that's one of his techniques. You know what, though? That's good, though, because how many people in your life do you like – you see them coming down the hall, and you're like, oh, this bitch. Like, <laughs> I don't even want to bother. <laughs> You know, it's like, oh, how you doing, Nancy? Oh, fine. And my car broke down and my mother-in-law's in town. And you're like, oh, I have a meeting. Uh, but it's five o'clock. Uh, gotta go. Yeah, I really didn't want to know. I'm only following the text that I'm supposed to follow in social niceties. <laughs> I don't really have anyone like that. But I don't have anyone on the other side either. I have seriously a lack of friends right now. I need to, I need to up my friendship game. That's Aww. not true, I don't think. You have friends. They're all when you say you have a lack of friends, what are you describing? Because you have friends, and you have, have, you have a few friends. I have so. a few friends, but they're all located far, far away from me. So I have mm-hmm. long distance friends, but I don't have like a ready social group that I like get together with, like we used to do in New York with like the Mag Seven. I was like up for everything. So I, so now I'm like, so there's no one actually in my group that's like a Nancy. That's like, oh no, when I see Nancy, this means I'm gonna have to sit through a lot of. You know, the thing is, though, with that kind of group is like, you know, Trish, Trish and I, uh, we had the two of us together and five other people. We were like this group. We call ourselves the Magnificent Seven because we did everywhere and went everywhere together. However, now in the future, like looking back, like that was a real high pressure social situation. And I'm of not course. certain that everybody in that, in that group thought of it, thinks of it as wistfully as we do because we uh, were calling the shots. <laughs> we were like, no, no, we're like no. hey, everyone, there's a concert. Um, if let's all go together, otherwise you can't hang, and we're not inviting you to the next day. No, it was, no, it was no, it got no, high school no. mean girls sometimes. I was no. gonna say you were right. the mean girls if like people. No, were no. Let hilarious. me just say no. I think the people who approached it with an air of this is a group that you can you can call one or two, three, however many, and say, hey, are you up for it? There was one member. I will say, I will give full props. There was one member of the group. That was always up for anything. <laughs> so was always called on at any moment in time. And I have to give him props for that. He was amazing. He's so, still amazing. I saw him just earlier today. I saw him about three hours ago. He's, he's amazing. So it, it was like you could utilize the Mag 7 as best as you can. I think Christopher was describing a process that. Uh, there were people in the Mag 7. <laughs> <laughs> who didn't show up for things. And I remember the four, five, or six was sitting around talking about that person. So it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows. All I'm saying, Trisha, That's is that all I'm saying is that I don't know if you need like a group of friends. Like you, you have friends in LA that you hang out with. I know that through your social media. Sure. You know, I know that through talking to you. But I don't I, so I'm just curious when you say friends, like what you're what you're actually trying to say. I mean, I need a I need a I need a ride group. I need a group that's ready to go do things. Ride or die, like you call it, and be like, "Yo, uh, things went south. I got this body in my trunk," and they're like, "I'll be right over." That's you too for me, by the way. Can I just say, if shit ever goes down, uh, maybe I shouldn't say this in public. Never mind. (laughs) The police will be at my house. Never mind. Never mind. I'll edit that part. I'll edit that part out. It's fine. One of those criminals. I know. (laughs) Oh my god, Jason. You call him. Call back. Idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Such an idiot. 
No, 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 no. I think, well, I'll just, I'll just insert this part. No, I just think I need not a ride or die group, but I think I really just need a group that's um, up for just exploring Los Angeles. I'm really up for exploring LA and all that it has to offer. And I kind of want to just be like, okay, who wants to do this thing and have like a, a ready companion to do that. But the only reason why I'm in this place is because really I spent a lot of my time traveling. So I haven't built up my core group of relationships like I could have. Jason, do you have friends or do you have kids? Because I know that sometimes it works <laughs> that way. No, I, I mean, no, I, yeah, I have kids. I have, I like you, Trisha, I would say mo- many of my friends are long distance mm-hmm. and I don't have time to hang out anyway because I'm running them around. So I guess we all, <laughs> the grass is always greener. Like, uh, no, I mean, I love my kids. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I don't I don't get to wake up and be like, where should I explore now? Because like this kid has a soccer game. That kid has a football game. Can I say I really want this to be a future conversation on our podcast. I've been talking to my sister about it. We've been just kind of like ruminating about parenting and like American style parenting and how essentially unattractive it is. We talked about this on the podcast, just without (laughs) just not with Jason, who's the actual parent of the group. We talked mad shit, remember? It was, I, I can tell you for a fact, it was four months ago when I came back from. Was it uh, a topic or was it just like. Yeah, a- I don't remember. And I think it was a topic. I'd come back from Germany and commented yeah, about yeah. the way I saw the men parenting there when, and just, and then we launched into this whole thing. So, Jason, you missed out. If you had listened to season mm-hmm. two, maybe you would have heard it, but you know. No, I mean, actually, I want like a reva, I want like a revamping of parenting. I think more people would do it because you know how people are saying how millennials are killing do everything. Need, but do we need we more don't, people to no, do it? Yeah, I I think we need to be having the exact opposite message. We have too many people. Yes, <laughs> one child per family. I mean, when, we're, when, when China comes in and takes over, I'm sure that's where we'll all be anyway. So can can I tell you? I had uh, I I, I uh, hung out actually with a friend, a former coworker. Yesterday, we were catching up. We hadn't talked in a long time, and she was telling me about sex robots the ethical questions that that's raising. And Jason. my first, yeah. Oh, you had a show about this? Go ahead. This one. I love it. Keep going. Oh, Jason. So you know, for the next year, Jason's going to gonna bring up every topic that we've already covered. I need to go listen to last season. That's but, awesome. um, no, but my first reaction, is she's bringing up all these ethical questions. My first reaction was maybe fewer people will have kids. <laughs> maybe. So let's jump into topics. Jason, you had something you want to talk about doing with Harvard and Asian Americans. What's that about? Yeah, so Harvard, there is a lawsuit now, and it's not a totally new issue, but it has gained new momentum for a variety of reasons, including the current administration. So basically, uh, there are folks suing Harvard saying that they have uh, racially discriminatory admissions practices in the sense that if they were selecting students solely based on their academic requirements, the Asian American population would uh, double at, at Harvard. I don't have it in front of me, but, um, you know, they go from like 25% to like 50%, basically. What I find interesting about this, and there's a lot interesting about it, but Harvard was trying not to release documents about their internal admissions processes, and ultimately they failed in keeping those secret. And what uh, came out was that they evaluate applicants in addition to academic measures on other things like likability um, and whether they're like widely accepted. Uh, when, when folks looked into it, it was clear that that's where Asian Americans were scoring lower. So the allegation, you know, Harvard's argument is, well, no, we have, we look at a bunch of different measures and 
we apply them fairly and this is what we end up with. But, you know, from what I can tell, the stuff I've read, it does look to me pretty clear. I mean, Asian Americans tend to do poorly on those measures like likability. And it does seem like Harvard is keeping down the number of Asian Americans who get in by using these measures. Now, the cat and mouse game that's going on is that people are saying, well, actually, this, you're, you're instituting soft quotas is what they're saying. Like, okay, you don't have like quotas where you say we're only going to have X percent Asian Americans. But in effect, you end up doing that because of these other measures you throw in that seem geared towards keeping the Asian American population down. And my question is whether quotas themselves are, would be a problem. Because I, I'll just show my cards here. Like I, I do, it, it rubs me the wrong way that there are these measures that seem clearly geared towards, you know, that, that, that there's a disadvantaged group with these measures. Um, and they seem designed that way. And I think that's problematic. It seems dishonest. But I, I personally don't have any problem with a university saying, you know what, we think for all of our students to get the best education possible for the university to achieve its mission, we want to have a population, a student population that reflects the broader population of the country or the world or whatever. But Harvard's not making that argument. They're basically saying, no, 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 we have a fair system and this is just how it shakes out. And uh, I just wanted to, I'd love to hear your thoughts on on this whole issue. I, I want to make sure that we use the correct facts. The, the Asian American share of the class would rise to 43% from 19 which is still double if they considered only academic achievement. You know, you said that if the school's mission is to reflect the population, uh, what the country looks like or what the world looks like. Um, I don't know, Jason. I, when I, I guess what I want to ask you is what is the value and what's gained by an educational institution designing their class to look a particular way demographically? What's gained by that? as far as the institution is concerned? Well, I think there are two possibilities. One is that you're preparing students to, uh, you know, to be successful in the world. The world looks a certain way. And so, um, you know, for students to be prepared, they should be surrounded by peers that reflect what they're going to see in the world that they enter the world of work afterwards. The other way to look at that, and I have to admit, I... Um, in preparing for this, I did look at Harvard to look at, I didn't see something labeled a uh, mission statement, but I'm going to just read to you the first sentence in the about Harvard uh, on that page. Harvard university is devoted to excellence in teaching, learning and research and to developing leaders in many disciplines who make a difference globally. So the other part that I would say is that if part of their mission is preparing leaders to make a difference globally, one could argue that to make a difference in different disciplines and different communities around the world, you should be preparing people who reflect all those different communities. So those are the two ways I would answer that. Your point is that you think it's you should you think it's okay for universities to just abandon the idea of soft quota and just explicitly state that they have a quota. I'm raising that question, but um, yeah, I think I lean towards that. And I and I we don't I don't mean to immediately stretch the scope of this, but even with businesses, I know this is very controversial, but I think if, if a quota is towards increasing equity and diversity and not decreasing it, I, I think I'm fine with that. I mean, my sense of it is, listen, I think you flip things around a little bit because I was thinking mostly of the case, right? And the case is sort of 
you know, that's what makes everybody uncomfortable. Like, well, you know, the reality is if it was really to really reflect the true applicant pool, then Asians would be 40 something percent. And then it then, but then the question for me is what's the real purpose of education, right? What's the purpose of an educational institution? Because the way that the, the way that sort of the um the plaintiffs in this case are perceiving this um their case is that listen, higher edu higher education institution, it should be just purely about um sort of meritocracy, right? I worked hard, I passed the test, and I should be allowed in. Um, and by that, by that measure, then, then the population should be 43%. But the question is, what's the purpose of a higher ed institution? And is it purely just about who passes and who gets the highest test score? They're obviously trying to create and shape a particular kind of learning environment. And so there, there should be some questions around what makes an effective learning environment? That seems to me that that's the question. And is it more about, I don't know if you want to even go down this line around quota. For me, the question is, what's an effective educational environment? And is an effective educational environment just the people who succeeded at the highest rung? I don't know if that's, the, I don't know if that should be it. I don't know if we should just natu naturally go with the higher scorers. I think there should be room for an admissions um, committee to evaluate other parts of a student beyond these like concrete, maybe quantifiable things like SAT scores or, or the kinds of like objective uh, measures that I think the, the, the plaintiffs are suggesting should be considered here. But then you immediately run into this problem, right? Which is that who decides who's personable or popular or is widely respected. Like when you move away from the quantifiable and the objective, you get in this very gray zone where you kind of are seeking something really specific mm -hmm. and everyone does is not on the same playing field with that. Like Well, let me let me just get this out. Because on some level, I agree with you. Like I don't I don't know how robotic college admission should be. Like you know, you have a 3.9, welcome to Harvard. Like <laughs> I, on, on some level, I understand that. Well, I don't, I don't understand, but I'm surmising from this conversation that, you know, is there a general agreement in this group that higher ed isn't just about test scores, it's about developing people as learners and leaders. If that's where you want to go, yes, then we are talking about some sort of X factor. I just don't know who gets to define that. And I, even in this conversation, I feel like we just keep talking around what that might be and how one might measure it. And that speaks directly to this lawsuit. You I don't know. think so, though. I disagree. I think the assumption of the lawsuit is that in some ways, test score is some objective truth. But what, what, the, loss, what, what, what the plaintiffs fail to consider is the equity question. You know, these plaintiffs are like, hey, we got the highest score, so we win the booby, booby prize. The question is, how did you get the higher score? Why should you be rewarded for the higher score? Why aren't we thinking about sort of the general citizenry and people who are in poor schools, underperforming schools, all of those kinds of things? Like, it feels like these people are trying to enforce a thing that actually doesn't really exist, which is this notion of a meritocracy. Because one of the things that's intriguing to me is that this case is really about race based admissions. They're not even attacking the other aspects of admissions. They're not talking about legacy admits. They're not attacking any of those. They're really explicitly talking about race-based admissions. And so for me, I'm less, I'm not as sympathetic to this case because I think this case is about something else. Go and on. I think, what I about think, what? 
I think it's about I think it's about pushing back on um, race based programs in the United States and programs that were meant to ameliorate poor things from the past. And so, to my mind, this is really a long. This is this is these people are playing the long game, and I think Asian Americans. I think people took a statement from the case. I think Alito's statement that Asian Americans might be a group that should consider whether their rights are being tampered with when they were in, when they were exploring that. Um, was it was it uh, what was the case? Was it was it Michigan? It was yeah, about Michigan, Michigan admissions. Case. Yeah, yeah, that admissions. Well, well, so, and, and in his dissent, he hinted that Asian Americans would pop could potentially be a group to bring this case, and then magically we have Asian Americans bringing this plaintiff are as plaintiffs in this case. I think this is an attempt to essentially push back on all of the achievements of board versus board of education. And so for me, I can't look at it purely as this like objective case. I think this case has is meant to dismantle a lot of things that were meant as a kind of reparative, knowing the history of discrimination in this country. So for, for us to perceive these cases as kind of this pure question of, should we be looking at objective measures or not? I just, I just, I feel like that's a trap. I really do. You know, scoring so, high on a test is not just, you know, it's not just about you. It's about the school you went to. It's about the prep that you had. It's about your parents' ability to afford prepping you for those tests. It's about a lot of things. Well, I, so I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. And I, so I do not think that admission should solely be based on test scores. Like I, I don't. And I think looking at a wide range is a good thing. In this, so, and I also agree with you, Tricia, I do think that this suit is part of a longer game against affirmative action. And I disagree with that agenda, but I do think one thing that they seem to have right and feel free to say, if you disagree, but one thing they seem to have right, these particular measures that Asian Americans across the board seem to do worse on in Harvard's admissions process, they do seem to be, to me, they were kind of engineered to not, you know, to, to effectuate keeping the, the class at Harvard not overwhelmingly Asian-American. You know, listen, I mean, that might be the case. Maybe research will bear that out. But I think what's interesting to me is that then why aren't they, why isn't the, why is the case pursuing a very narrow definition? Why not expand the question around admissions in general and attack all of the different buckets of admissions? Why attack just the race one? That was the, that's also what they asked. But that's the question. That's the real question. Because then, 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 then you understand what the real game plan is. The game plan is race-based admissions and leading to affirmative action admissions. That's what this is about. So essentially what they're doing, and I think it's fine. You know, I get it. I think what they're doing is weaponizing Asian-American resentment, which is valid, against race-based admissions to essentially... Deconstruct the entire process, but also, I mean, thinking slightly darker, one could say that in bringing this case, citing Asian Americans, trying to push for a court to say that this isn't just and that you should use quantifiable objective measures, would then further punish Black and Latino people, which is the end goal. Yes, which I was going to say, if you want to get darker, is the end goal because we live in an anti-Black society. it's it's or, interesting what you're raising, Trisha. You you've changed my mind. It's not. Listen, if you try to go for objective measures, everyone wants to believe in objective measures. That's the seductive nature of an objective measure. It's like you're like, yes, test 
scores. How bad can that be? This is the issue in Stuyvesant in New York, remember? Mm -hmm. This is what's going on there. They want to get rid of a test, which people are like, oh my God, no, you can't get rid of the test. The test is the most objective thing ever. But then when you deconstruct who gets to prepare for the test, how they can afford the test, the prep for the test, all of that, then the question of uh, objectivity- And the truth is revealed in that it's not as objective as people would like. Everyone's not up at the exact same rate. Yeah, right. And so, you know, it's so interesting. I was reading an article about how the plaintiffs and the pursuit of the, the just the right type of plaintiff is basically pulling from the NAACP playbook. Um, you have to find, quote unquote, the right victim, you know, and you have to find just the right, like, sympathetic environment, which I think happens to be this current administration. And I think what you're, which what I think what we're set, we're setting ourselves on a course to erode a lot of the advancement that we were expecting to make under the ruling of Board of Education. I really do. And I mean, maybe people have been actively, you know, segregating. The ruling of Brown versus Board Brown Brown versus Board of Education. You know what I mean? I do. I just, it makes me nervous. I get what, I get what, um, I get what the plaintiffs are saying here. You're right. There is something definitely unfair about this, but then deconstruct the entire admissions process. Toss up all the other buckets in the mix. Jason, so how would you react to like what Trish is presenting? Because like I have to say, she's extremely persuasive, <laughs> just in general. But also, she makes a really great point. Like this might seem like as liberal people, we should be like, oh no, absolutely, these Asians are being stopped. Asian Americans are not being allowed in Harvard, and we should stop that as like liberal-minded people for people of color, et cetera, et cetera. But any ruling here is going to necessarily hurt Black and Latino people who need who need some of these programs um, and set-asides in order to get into these um, places of higher learning? Well, I, I will say a few things. First of all, I just want to point out the fundamental problem here is K-12 education because the deep, deep, deep problem is that we don't provide a quality education to exactly. black and brown kids. I mean, across so, the board. Yeah, that's yeah. that's so unfortunately that, always – that's a given. I mean, that's so sad, but yes. It is. Well, and that's why one thing I would just take a little issue with you, Tricia, unfortunately, is the quote of advances since Brown versus Board. I think we could I think there's an argument to be made that education for black children has not gotten better since Brown versus Board. That's not to say I disagree with the decision of Brown versus Board. But unfortunately, there's not much evidence to show that evidence has, that education has gotten better. Um, for black and brown children since Brown versus Board. So, so I think but this wouldn't make it better, Jason. You know what I'm saying? No, if a, no, if a no. court so, came down and said, like, you must use objective scores, no more personality, no more widely respected, no more presentability. Like, no, no, that's why I, I agree with just about everything Trisha said. To me, though, the remedy is not to say, it, like, oh, yeah, let's have measures like likability. And widely yeah, respected. What the hell does that mean let, anyway? What right, does that even mean? Let's allow <laughs> quotas. Like, like, let's actually allow quotas. And by the way, one thing I learned mm-hmm. in my career is that the more selective a school any student goes to, the better the chance that they will actually finish their degree there. And that is very counterintuitive. Like I have to say, when I first heard that, I thought that was probably not true. But I actually, I, I think it is true. Say it again. The more selective a college is, no matter how well prepared a student is, the more selective a school they get into and go to, the better the chance they will actually finish it with a degree. So that's an argument against, well, hey, you know, this student 
is not prepared for X school, so they should go to a lower tier school. Well, the reality is they have a better chance of success at the higher tier school. That's a whole, that's a whole other conversation. But my point is, so like, I am agreeing largely with you. I think the best outcome of this would be schools should be able to set quotas. Again, as long as they're quotas that increase diversity and equity and don't decrease. What are those, what do those quotas look like? Like, you know, 20% of our student body must be Asian. 25 must be white. 15 must be black. 10 must be Latino. Uh, 10 must be native, um, uh, native American Pacific Islander. Um, yeah. Like, is that what it looks like? Yeah. So who gets to set those? Me just now? No. Well, I mean, look, Harvard is a private nonprofit institution. Well, and, but you know where that's going to, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but that's going to become problematic immediately. Like why 20% Asian? Why not 30, 35% white? Well, aren't you doing it by percentage of the population? Is that, is that, is that how yeah, I think there needs I'm sure Harvard doesn't want that either. <laughs> Well, why so, not? But, but, the, but that's the point. Harvard would never advance that, Trisha, because this is my whole thing about this conversation. Can we just say, can Harvard just say what they want to say? Like, that's the thing. Like, oh, if they were like, oh, yeah, you can have quotas and just do it by the population, Harvard wouldn't be happy about that because the population is browning. And let's be, let's be real about what Harvard wants to do and like the kind of people they want to train and the well, kind of future that they're invested in creating. We can't, first of all, you don't know what Harvard wants to do because, um, well, listen, the presumption on, if you're, if you're going with the plaintiff, Harvard wants something that the plaintiff doesn't want, right? Which is Harvard wants more diversity and the plaintiff's like, no, we want 44% of Asians. Do you know what I mean? So you can't presume that. So that, let's just say that. There's this notion that I think has been introduced by a gentleman at Yale and he's suggesting a solution to a potential admissions problem. Jason, that you hearken to, which is the, the real problem is K through 12. One of the things he was suggesting is that what if you were to give, what if colleges were to give admissions bonuses to applicants who had attended a K through 12, K through 12 school with at least a certain percentage of low income students? Reason being that this would prevent a sort of white flight that happens. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't heard that. That is a fascinating idea. Right. So it, so what so in so in some sense, what you're because I think your claim is is accurate, this notion that people are unsure of how of how um, much of an impact Brown versus Board of Education has had because people have chosen other ways to segregate. Right. And so um, and part of that segregation is white flight. So the notion uh, and we're making a lot of presumption about who's a low income student, but let's be real. So then the the thing then becomes part of your admissions packages in part in, in, in order for us to evaluate you as a student, we're looking around and saying, where did you come from high school? And did you go to a high school that had at least 20 to 30% low income students? Because, and so then parents would have an incentive to right. stick with their students in a kind of integrated. Oh, wow. school. Well, you know, there's another way to do that too. The other way to do it is you say admissions is going to be based on class rank. Class rank in what way? What do you mean? Like, we're going we're gonna to admit the top five students in every high school. I mean, that's obviously an overstatement. But if you are only looking at class rank, but you're, if you're trying to capture as broad a swath of high schools as possible mm-hmm. across the country, mm-hmm. and you're just going to do class, class rank. So if you're like Harvard and we want the top tier, but we're going to pick the top five from all these different high schools, well, then that also gives people incentive to not necessarily go to like the most competitive high school or the whitest high school because it's in their interest to 
to have a high class rank. It also means that schools that are, you know, overwhelmingly students of color, like those students who have access to, to colleges. Well, you know, it's interesting. The case that we were talking about before, I said it was University of Michigan, but it was actually University of Texas at, Texas at, at Austin. Oh, oh we, I figured that was the case. Yeah, remember? Hunter? Yeah. Fisher. Mm-hmm. Fisher. Fisherverse, you know, yeah. You know, the reason why Fisher actually wasn't able to get in theoretically if you wanted to explore it was because of the top 10 issue, right? Because they accept, University of Texas said that all students who qualified at a certain rank had to be admitted. So then the slots were less. So then what happened is that she was then competing with, she was competing with a much larger pool for much smaller plots. So like, for example, Texas was accepting the top 10 students from all of the schools in Texas, something like Mm -hmm. that. Right. right, And so that left them with, they were accepting 900 and something and left them with 40 slots. Mm. And so then she had to compete for those 40 slots because she wasn't part of the top 10. Do you know I mean? So it's like, it's really interesting. There's a, I mean, listen, the real issue on the table basically is we're using college admission to repair something that Jason yeah. accurately pointed out, which is that we have poor K through 12 education. Yep. So this is a, this is a red herring. This it, it's all a red herring, right? It all is because if you had good K through twelve education for everyone, you wouldn't have to be battling around these issues, right? And mm-hmm. if we didn't, and if we didn't assume that admissions to Harvard meant essentially life is smooth sailing from now on, then we wouldn't be having these battles. And so, what makes me pissed off about this is we're not trying to figure out how to repair K through twelve we're asking these kinds of questions, which is how do we make sure that the kids who succeed and thrive in K through 12 by whatever means continues to succeed and thrive at the higher, at higher ed institutions. Well, I, or, or if their parents made a big donation to the school, which that that's a common liberal mm-hmm. rebuke of all this, which is fair, which is to say, well, if we really want to, I think Trisha, you alluded to this. If we really want to, if we really want to respond to, you know, these problems, um, we should start by saying just because your parent went to this school, if you're a piss poor student, you shouldn't be able to go to the school. But uh, the colleges aren't going to do that because then their revenue would go down significantly. Mm-hmm. If we could, right, not mm-hmm. limit it to race-based admissions. I, I have to say this is the most, one of the most <laughs> successful conversations we ever had. <laughs> I, I completely changed my point of view and we solved the problem. K-12 no, is the problem. <laughs> and tomorrow, no, no, that guy, that suggestion that. from the guy at Yale I'm thinking about it and I'm searching it up right now. I, it sounds, that's fascinating. Yeah. And it would, it definitely would correct the problem that we are worried about, that I am worried about. Which is what? Um, um, just like what, the, what you said, that we're using, that this whole thing is a red herring to further wring our hands about something when the real problem is somewhere else. You know, so we, we would pick over this, like, like surgically do something <laughs> with college admission and, pick over it over and over and over again. Meanwhile, kids in K through 12 continue to fail um, and right. continues to create inequity just by the basis of how the education system is handled in the country. Yep. And it starts, it's, it's like head start kindergarten, elementary school where we should be focused instead of worrying about what a whole bunch of hoity-toity rich entitled people, um, rich strike that, um, entitled people who are eligible to go into Harvard, the fact that they don't get there. I, I just, I feel like the attention. Well, let's the- be careful though. There are a lot of poor Asians who are trying to get into Harvard. Sure, that's, sure. That's, that's I, the assumption. I struck rich because yeah. it's yeah. not about it's not about rich, but like yeah. uh, I'm just saying, like um, I just in wrapping it up, 
maybe is this broad? No, but I think it's I think it's fair to say that if you are eligible to get into Harvard, you have other opportunities. Meanwhile, there are kids in low income schools, K through twelve, uh, K through six, right? So much is determined by those early years. There's a lot of kids in low income schools, K through six, who their their opportunities are being removed daily while they remain in those schools, and we're worried at at this end. At the at the right. end of it, and I, yep. it's probably just not the focus we should have. Not that it not that it is, not that it isn't a problem of some side. I just don't think we should be focused there. Okay. No to your quotas, Jason. Yeah, sorry, Jason. Wait, uh, what? No to the yeah. quotas? No, I think we're basically agreeing on the quotas. What are you talking about? No, no but not the way that you suggested. No. How did you? <laughs> how did you take you know that from our conversation? You're not even quotas, listening to us. <laughs> if, if, you know what the, the sad thing about it is? Quotas means that that case gets struck down. People well, that's you. the that's the problem. Uh, yes, right. People don't like yeah. it. Um, but I still, I'm saying, I still <laughs> think, even though most people don't like it, that would be more equitable than having some bogus like likability. This kid's not likable. Yeah, but I mean, we're not, we're not starting. We're not going back in a circle. Like, I, that's not what, a good system. What if I developed an objective test for likability? Would that solve your problem? You know what? I, I would love determine. to see it. I know, I know exactly who's likable and who's not. I'm just gonna say, oh if you want an objective test for likability, ask me. Oh, <laughs> Where's AI to solve this problem? Oh, boy. (laughs) Speaking of AI, let's crash. (laughs) Great segue, Trisha. Uh, So Trisha shared an article written by Keith Spencer in Salon that was printed earlier this year about the superhero genre um, and how it reflects and sort of waves a flag for current social, political, and economic ideas. Now, the article itself is very wide-ranging. Like, there's a lot of thoughts. There's a lot of ideas in there. And for the most part, it's a good article because it it presents a lot of facts. Um, And Trisha, can you just summarize, like, just take any part of what he was saying and what was most interesting to you and just describe that for the audience? Well, what I find interesting is storytelling, right? How do we tell the story about the moment that we're in? And I thought that this was positing a type of storytelling that's happening. I think the author's main point of main point is that the reason why um, these genre superhero movies are resonating with the culture, um, in the sense that they're making a ton of money and it seems like it's not going to stop, so much so that people are just digging in the bottom of a barrel for another comic that they found and threw away and making a movie about it, was that in some ways the comic book superhero reflects. Um, our present moment and our attraction and our love affair or antipathy towards uh, capitalism. And so I shared the article because I wanted us to talk about whether superhero movies were priming us to respond to the type of government we have and essentially constraining our um, capacity to imagine a different type of world outside of capitalism. And to be more specific, he talks a lot about just the construction of these stories is where there are these mythic beings who are very simple moral compasses. They're either good or evil, and they, they either rule over or threaten over or threaten other people in the universe. There's no middle class the, the means of production are usually hidden. Uh, he talks about Iron Man and Wakanda and the rest of that, where you never, ever see 
who creates that. We're left to believe that Tony Stark created those Iron Man suits on his own when really it would have taken hundreds, if not thousands uh, people and billions of dollars. Uh, And so the idea being is that it is priming us to think about um, moral issues against an economic base. I think what it's suggesting is that we are missing people in these equations. Jason, what was your uh, reaction to the article? I mean, I thought the article made some good points. I, there's just, there are a lot of ways in which I, it didn't resonate with me. So one is that this issue of like this, you know, heroic figure who we don't see the means of production and who um, we're waiting to save us and we're not really believing in democracy. I mean, to me, that's just as old as time, like the messianic figure, you know, there's nothing new about that. And I'm not sure that the way superhero movies are, are, um, portrayed these days is different enough that it is somehow more reflective of the current time than it is tropes that have been with us forever. So that, that's, Spencer that's talks about the volume of these movies coming out so, now. So what's interesting to me, as much as he, he's talking about um, late capitalism, I feel like what he completely doesn't mention is, well, why is there so much vol- volume? Because there there are, economic forces at play around the world that are a big part of driving why these are the movies being made. I don't think it's as simple as, well, we are, we all are reflecting neoliberalism so much that these are all the movies we want to watch. I mean, a lot of it is China and India have an, have exponentially more buying power than they had, you know, some time ago. And so American uh, production studios want to make movies that are going to do well, not only domestically, but all over the world. And so they're pouring unprecedented amounts of money into, into these films. I mean, he does talk about how Disney has, you know, gradually expanded its, its kind of universe of franchises. And that's part of it. Like they, they saw a big money making opportunity because of global economic but developments. Isn't, and isn't that and a kind pouring... of, isn't that kind of a soulless analysis? Like at the end of the day, you get to choose which stories you tell and you make, you make those decisions based on what you think the culture might be able to consume, right? And so it's isn't it a little easy to say like, oh, the reason why these movies are popular is because they're popular and people will buy them? Like that, that feels circular to me. There's a reason why they're popular now. There's a reason why we didn't make superhero movies in the 80s. There's a reason why this was like the kiss of death in the 90s and they couldn't, they, no one wanted to buy the rights to these characters. You can't say that this time, this, clearly something has shifted. And in entertainment, Right in the in this marketplace, they're they have something to sell, so they want to make sure that people buy. So it's going to be the attractive thing. Do you follow what I'm saying? I do, but I, I, I'm not saying there's no merit to his argument. But to, I mean, again, I guess I'll pose the question to you, Chris, and you know comic books better than I do. Is there something significantly different about the characteristics of these movies that is more reflective of the current time than the characteristics of similar movies in another time? Spencer makes the point, right? And he, and it's worth a read and we'll link to it. He makes the point. He describes superhero myths and stories. Yeah, like those stories have always been that way. But the point that he's trying to make is that those stories themselves tend to be anti-democratic, right? In the sense that every, every creation myth, it's never a bunch of people who get together and then decide who should be elevated amongst the rest, right? Instead, it's orphans and rockets, or orphans in dark alleys, or orphans made out of clay on an Amazon island, 
right? It's people who either inherit their powers or pull themselves up by their bootstraps and take their powers or battle others, stronger people to claim their powers. And those stories, what Spencer is saying, that those stories themselves don't prepare people for thinking outside the box of capitalism good and nothing else exists. The idea that that the only the only the opposite of capitalism is non-existence. And I think that's that's a big claim that Spencer makes. And I think if he wrote a book, he might be able to get a reader there, like massage you closer. But I do see that there's a point to what he's saying. Like, yeah, what I think what you're saying, Jason, is that the the tone and tenor, the style has definitely changed of these stories, but the tone and the tenor haven't, right? From like right. The, the 1930s to now. However, you know, it is a particular kind of story. And it was a story at one moment in time that no one was buying. Comics, right after the World War, the Great War, I'm sorry, not the Great War, the Second World War, weren't doing that well. Um, And they had to be revived in the 50s and 60s when Spider-Man and the rest of that. People didn't, those stories weren't resonating because that's not where the culture was, right? But I think it's very interesting that after the 80s, right? After the fall of the Soviet Union, after like we doubled down on capitalism and we had to really buy into it, that these stories proliferated and are now worth billions of dollars. Now, the other thing that Spencer talks about, which I, I, I really enjoyed reading about, and then I'm going to shut up because I think I'm going on too long, is just the idea that we all think of so much of what we do in terms of the marketplace, right? Yeah. And the idea that like we think about our consumerability as part of our identity. I'm a conservative person, so I watch Tim yeah. Allen on TV. You know, I'm a liberal person, so I bribe purple hair dye. Like that, that is problematic to the point where now we ourselves are products. Like I have a brand on Instagram. And I guess what he's saying is that superhero movies like that genre is sort of like the vanguard of a dying economic system to push itself deeper into our consciousness and soul that it itself is a harbinger for these ideas to make sure that we don't forget that your options are capitalism and no other option now like i said like i and i was thinking about this about the article there really isn't a creation myth which involves a group of people who are relatively equal coming together and deciding which of their number they will elevate amongst the rest. That's not a proper creation myth. Even as I say it, I'm wondering how that's hitting you too. It seems preposterous that that's how we pick a hero because it has to be more of an individual sort of thing. And that's just not an accident. You know, part of the central tenet is that the storytelling that we tell um, in the moment is a reflection of the culture, right? But this is also, but this is also Joseph Campbell's central thesis, right? I knew you were going to bring up Joseph Campbell. I mean, we have to bring up Joseph Campbell <laughs> because this is the this is the hero's journey, right? And so the question right. becomes: Isn't Star Wars the seventies, right? Isn't Star Wars wasn't Star Wars the compelling story of that era in terms of what myth making was about in, in in the hero's journey tale, right? And and in some ways, people feel like Star Wars is a different. Was a di- reflected a different tenor and a different idea of the time. I'm trying to figure out, do you guys see a distinction between the hero making that was happening in Star Wars and the one that's happening now? I mean, that's, I guess, the point I'm making. That I don't see a question. I, I don't see a significant one. And mm-hmm. I mean, the article focuses so much on the moment. And I, you know, you summed up some of it just very well just now, Chris. It, the, I mean, it, the article seemed very much to me like a lot of things I read in college, which is very Marxist critique of all this really is, is just capitalism and capitalism is dying. And 
I find that an interesting belief that people still have. That it's dying? Given, I feel like it's well, alive and well. <laughs> yeah, given where, I mean, and then you look at China, you look at Cuba, you look at the Soviet Union. I, that's the other thing that I just, so yeah, but one point is the one you just made, Trisha, which is I don't, I don't, um, or the question you raised, I don't know that these stories are different enough to say, well, they're reflective of this moment and previous stories were reflective of other moments. Obviously, there's always some truth to that. But, but the other thing is like I, the, the economic determinism um, and by the way, I should mention right now, I happen to re- be reading a biography of Marx and I'm reading the Communist Manifesto, which is very interesting to be reading right now. But the determinism of it, I just I don't see where he's seeing the evidence of that. Well, you know, it's interesting. You're in psychology years ago in school. I read an article called The Empty Self. And the article presupposes that post-World War II, we had to create a consumptive self. We had a lot of excess, right? And we wanted people to go out and buy things. That was the, the, the roaring, uh, you know, U.S. economy, you know, all of that. So there was the assumption that people needed to buy more things. It was not enough for you to have one thing. You need to have multiple things. And so I'm curious to see whether this is sort of the natural extension of that empty self, consumptive self model, where now you have to kind of define your consumer behavior as an extension of yourself. Like that was an interesting, interesting. do you know what I mean? That was an interesting part of it, which is, yes. you know, um, I think that's an interesting element of this article was this notion of how do you define who you are? How do you define your, and actually it reminded me of the conversation that we had um, the week prior in our previous podcast when we were talking about whether artists who had um, the Me Too men could come back. What did we end up saying? That you had to make a statement around your dollars. That became how we were going to make decisions as a community, right? As a community, we can decide we're not going to consume your right. product. Right. And that became our value system. That was the only way, because we were trying to figure out if we had a central value system anymore that went beyond what you consumed. I think that's the part of it that was resonant to me this notion that we are sort of a consumptive culture and that we can't really decide what is good or bad anymore unless, if, unless we choose to consume it or not consume it. Looking back, I think he wrote an article about neoliberalism and late capitalism and used the superhero thing as a hook, right? Sure. In trying to set up this article, I think I was confused by what he was saying. He raises a lot of issues about comic book movies, those mm-hmm. plots, but also the way that we deify captains of industry yep. and really smart people in our society um, yeah. and then comparing that, you know, comparing Elon Musk to Tony Stark and that sort of thing. Uh, I think he, he has a lot of interesting points, whether or not they're good. I'd have to check some of this data to really check. But they're resonant though. They're resonant. It resonates. It resonates. It feels good. This is one of those <laughs> articles that, this is one of those articles that, um, I'm suspicious of because it feels really good. Every paragraph, I'm like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, yes. But whether or not all of that yes adds up to a yes, like it's, it's, <laughs> I don't know. Well, I mean, although let's be honest, if you think that the culture is problematic overall and we only celebrate the one, the folks that succeed in it, then by extension, that's a problem. Like if only certain people are going to rise to the top and we then turn around and go, hey, let's celebrate that one or 2% that got to the top. You're must, mm-hmm. you're this, you're what have you. That's inherently problematic because what we're talking about is that we're living in an 
inequitable society where only a few people thrive, it's somewhat related to our quota conversation all over again. And somehow or another, we have a kind of genre of movies that's basically saying celebrate those people and celebrate, celebrate and them, trust them. Let them rule you. Yeah, celebrate and trust it. them. Because if <laughs> don't, then Thanos will snap his fingers and half of everyone will be wiped out. Spoiler alert, but you have like nine months to see it. Just hypothetically speaking. I just no, hypothetically, but- if I was going to write an Avengers movie. No, I think that's well said. And the other thing, is, I mean, the issue of you know, are we capable of imagining a democracy and equality without having to elevate certain people to take care of us? I mean, that, we've talked about yeah. that on this podcast before. Like that, that I feel like is an age old and universal is not the right word, but we see that in lots of places. And, and here we are in this moment, like, you know, do Americans want democracy? If you look, and I guess this is part of his point, which I agree with him on this. If you look around, like not, not really. Zombies <laughs> and daddies to take care of us well i mean because think about the larger point is that it's so difficult for a lot of people to succeed that there is a tendency to look around and say who mastered who mastered this very very problematic environment can you help guide us and you know i mean i think in some ways he he makes a case for sort of the philanthropic impulse too right these are the very few masters of the universe who through their philanthropic organizations are offering to help clear a path for us, right? Rather than in some sense, you're having a more equitable society where there's just no huge peaks, but just everyone getting access to what they need. Maybe those right. stories aren't dramatic enough, but, maybe, but also <laughs> we, don't in, but we don't invest in making them dramatic. Like, we you don't know, if you think about like Black Panther and Wakanda, here's a b- benevolent, billionaire ruler right (laughs) who lives in a utopia by which we're supposed to just believe that this utopia just sprung up like the the author makes spencer makes a point in his article to talk about like in in movies in these superhero movies or like these epic struggle movies you only see the quote-unquote evil person using coercive labor to get things done right so you know we're led to believe that the death star is created (laughs) by you know like the most terrible of tactics you know to put together the death star they have to like take planets and pull out their cores and mine them but that millennium falcon doesn't look cheap either you know what i mean <laughs> so i don't i don't know where you came upon that like you know the fact that people that clearly that um like i mentioned the means of production we don't see any of that in movies so we're led yeah. to believe that tony stark built that machine by himself that he built all those machines by himself like batman is rich and his richness allows him to be in a position to protect the rest of us, you know, and, and there, there is something about those stories, like one after another, like fallen from the sky, picked by the gods, a super billionaire, the benevolent prince, like that I think drumbeat that- of story is going to influence the way that we think about heroism. Well, I think when, I think you've hit the nail on the head though. I'm curious about whether these stories is just not a propagation of the individualist myth period. You know, I mean, I think if you look at other cultural traditions within the US, they don't tell that story. But they don't continue, they don't they don't control the means of production to be able to tell that story. Like we just had a conversation about sort of the crazy rich Asian story, right? And think about think about the resolution in that movie. And think about how that resolution was family oriented. 
There was no specific hero in that space. There's no singular individual that gets to triumph. It was a really, it was a family triumphing. And so I actually, maybe what we're, what we're seeing is just a preponderance of sort of white male tales. And male tales, first of all, male tales, which is always singular about the male. I think if you had different people telling stories, you might have more of this kind of group-oriented storytelling, which was, I think, um, Ava DuVernay's, whether she was successful in people's mind or not, attempt to tell the Selma story. She was telling that story not as King as some sort of like Superman, but King as a kind of person committed to the moment, but with a group of others. And so I think our tendency is not to tell those stories of group engagement over time, slow progress, blah, blah, blah. We substitute them with this individualistic push so that people, so I don't know if it's necessarily a reflection of truth or just a kind of version of storytelling that we've always liked to tell, whether they're truthful or not. Well, I, I totally agree. I would, I would say, so I think the male part of it is definitely the vast majority of these stories have a male hero. And I'm, mm -hmm. when I say these stories, I mean folklore. Um, yep. This is one thing I don't think this is limited to white societies. Like I think it's not every society, but I think lots and lots of societies all over the world have these stories of male heroes being the the saviors, the messiahs. Um, it seems like a very common thing. And I think it I, it does seem like we need to affirmatively, proactively create stories and retell stories of, of kind of communal um, success. And I think there are. I mean, one of the I'm, things that- I'm going to push back on you, Jason. I'm sorry, Trisha, to interrupt, but I'm going to push back that that, I don't think you're correct. Like I'm thinking about myths and fables from other cultures and mm -hmm. how they differ from say like Greco-Roman myths and fables. I mean, I, this could be a whole nother topic and I feel like I want to do more research before I speak out of turn. But I'm thinking about certain African tales mm -hmm. where uh, spe specifically about trickster gods and about how human beings are able to push back against them and in turn trick the divine uh, or control the divine, which, I mean, definitely with Greek myths, you know, you see that with Perseus and the rest, but I, I don't know. I'm not ready to quite say that this is an across the board thing. I think there is an element of um, Euro culture to the stories that we're telling. And I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to revisit this in the future, but I think if you pull the right string, it will be exposed. Well, I, let me just say, I just want to clarify. What I'm saying is the concept of the male savior, mm -hmm. to me, I can think of examples in lots of different cultures around the world. The single male savior, when sure. in fact, there were like lots of people who were a part of that. I mean, this is a little bit of digression, but one thing I find interesting. So, you know, you take Jesus. One of the things we see in the Gospels is that it says that Jesus and his disciples got rid of private property and held their goods in common. You know, arguably, Jesus did create a democratic society among his apostles, but it sure doesn't get told that way. And I think that you the same thing with the Buddha, like the Buddha and his followers, they held everything in common. And But the story rarely gets told from a democratic point of view. It usually continues to elevate the individual, the individual male at that. Well, I think and I think you come back around to this idea. The stories that we tell ourselves is not actually encouraging us to have an accurate understanding and appreciation of the challenge of democracy. Yes. Yes. That. Thank you. And, you know, thank when you, you ask. And I think that's Spencer's point. 
Yes. And I think, and it's interesting because Spencer couldn't even offer contrasting stories. Well, that's the point. His point is is that you can't. But I think they exist. I think they exist. But I think what he struggles to do is find them in the global myth-making stories of the white box office figure, right? Because even if you think about, just think about limited fashion. If you think about what was different about um, Black Panther and let's celebrate it, woohoo! One of the things that was different about it (laughs) is that, is how much he sought aid from the women around him, from the community of people around him. That's that was a set, that's an essentially different form of storytelling than we've ever seen in the other superhero genre, right? True, that's something we talk about. Spencer Spencer talks I mean, about this, and I mean, and he would say well, like, yes, while the presence of women, people of color in Black Panther, while it seems like progressive, the underlying ideas are not. Uh, which I think I think that's the part of his article that I found most interesting because I w- I'm quick to think of Black Panther and Wonder Woman as an achievement and storytelling in this genre. But what he, what he highlights is that not quite, not quite is that, that on the surface, it looks very liberal, but you know, when you think about Wakanda, when you think about what's presented rather um, on screen, there are problems with it. Uh, The the problems that he highlights rather, he highlights. But, But I think the thing that you have to, I think what's useful about that is to recognize that we all participate in that. Because I think the, the, the fantasy is that black people aren't capitalists or that women aren't capitalists, right? There are these like ideas of who's really capitalistic. I think that that's why, I mean, that's why I think it's resonant to say that maybe Black Panther is not fully a departure, but the assumption that black people are naturally some other needs to be parceled out too. Black people could be just as capitalistic as any, we are all part of the system, right? So well, I think, I, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's it's important to say, and maybe this is what Jason was trying to say earlier, is that this is Spencer's not drawing a white black issue. These oh these God. ideas themselves, we can talk about where those ideas come from, but like it's not a white black issue in the sense that the the advancement of capitalist ideas, the advancement of thinking about our economic system as the last final evolution of a civilized hurt people, uh, that is extremely problematic. If we could attempt to tell stories that think outside of that box, that would be interesting. That would lead people to think about something else. Can I make, sure. a, can I make a, just a quick point about what was soothing this week, which was a very stressful week, but it's it was actually question. listening to other people tell the tale of how transformation and change happens. Because I think it's part of this idea that it's a singular march towards, that it's progressive. But it was reading people who had been parts of the civil rights movement, actively engaged in the civil rights movements and been doing this work for 50 years, recognized the, the sort of Brett Kavanaugh moment and saying, hey, two steps forward, three steps back, you know, it was to sort of broaden the picture. And so in a weird way, that affirms the larger theme of that article as well, which is that we don't we have to have alternate visions and models of how things how change happens. It's not one magical step forward, right? You've got to be able to see groups of people striving towards change and then having it not work and da 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 da. You know what I mean? So I think that that's helpful. That was helpful for me this week. That was very heartening. Oh. All right. Awesome. Well, let's jump into media recommendations, which is something that you've seen, heard, read, or experienced that you think other people should see, hear, read, or experience. Jason, why don't you go first? So I, earlier today, uh, was I was listening to a a, pod, a podcast kind of rebroadcast of um, 
one of the recent episodes of The 1A, which is an NPR show I really like. I have not read this book, but the book they talked about, which is new, is The Red and the Blue, The 1990s and the Birth of Political Tribalism. And so the author of that, Steve Kornacki, um, was on. And oh, the book sounds amazing. It was a very interesting conversation. And the thing that I found most fascinating, they played a clip of Donald Trump when he was running against Pat Buchanan for the nomination of the Reform Party in the 90s for president. And Donald Trump criticizes Pat Buchanan for being racist and anti-Semitic and homophobic. And it is startling, not only what was said, but also they went into kind of what Pat Buchanan's um, platform was, which included a border wall. Like somehow it, it was uncanny that Trump, you know, at that point was defining himself against Pat Buchanan and then completely adopted his playbook. It was just, it was uncanny. I don't know how else to describe it. It was uncanny. <laughs> what is it? What is it then revealed about? What does it reveal about what we know about our president? Which is I, extremely. I don't know. I'm, I'm I less. I'm less uncanicized by this. Like, that's my question, Jason. What does this reveal that you didn't already know? What it revealed that I didn't already know was that he branded himself so differently in the early to mid '90s. And I would have thought Pat Buchanan ultimately was not terribly successful, although he was scarily successful, but ultimately unsuccessful. The fact that Trump decided that that would be a winning playbook is just, I don't know, that was fascinating to me. I think he might have been testing it out. That's what's interesting, right? He was testing out different playbooks and demonstrating that. Or was he just loud and accusatory and contrary? No, I mean, I think, listen, I think... I mean, that, right? Is that what... No, I don't think we should be dismissive in that way. I think what we have to recognize is that he picks whatever playbook that he thinks is going to be effective. Right. And yep. I think at the moment, he probably thought that would have been a more effective playbook, not something that resonated with him. So I think that's the thing that's noteworthy is that it's difficult to figure out what's resonant for Trump, really. Nothing. Rather, that's rather why I'm than, saying that's... Don't make that presumption. The presumption is, is, how do you... That because the exa- because what Jason is saying right now says that, that nothing, nothing is resonant for him. He literally said something different 20 years ago, the opposite we're saying now. So, I mean, that well, makes well, the point that nothing resonates for him. No, but, so the, the, but the big question yeah. – so the question is why would he go from that you know, approach to this one? It may be – the only thing I can think of is that post you know, a black president, yep. he realized that the racial grievance – approach and the anti-immigration kind of nativist economic nationalism white nationalism that buchanan was selling i'm guessing trump said you know what after obama this might actually this might be marketable and Mm -hmm. he was right so i mean my assumption isn't so much the question of what trump believes i don't think that's even the question i think what's important is to note his ability to time the moment and figure and figure out what's going to be resonant that's 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 the value of it, right? Because people are like, oh my God, this guy doesn't have any... We, are, we don't know. We don't know what any of these people really believe, right? But the, the question right. is, what do you, what's the platform that's going to be mm-hmm. resonant? And you yeah. pick it. <laughs> no, I, I totally He's agree with that. Did. And you know, you know, my thing is like, I don't care what yep. any president believes. I care about the impact of their policies and their rhetoric. And that's yep. what is very public. Well, you are a dying breed. Trisha, <laughs> 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 what's your media recommendation? Um, I'm going to have an anti-recommendation, which I, I presume... I love these. 
I presume that I'm going to be a part of a very, very elite group of people who do not enjoy this movie and will have nothing positive to say about it, but it will continue to make tons of money. My anti-recommendation is A Star is Born. Oh, that's juicy. Oh, I can't wait to hear. Oh, you my God. You know, Trisha. You know what? I have questions for you. First of all, Trisha, I have questions for you. Um, I, I, you know, I love a musical. You know, why don't you present it? And then I'm going to go okay. ahead. I love a musical. It was the perfect time for me to be soothed by a musical. I sat in this musical. And first of all, I was like, this is boring. This is derivative why the hell do we continue to find these men interesting? Having said all that, the singing, of course, singing's great. It's Gaga. So get the album. There's nothing, there's nothing in this story that is remotely emotionally true, emotionally honest, and I welcome the time in the future when we can have a hero in a mo- a romantic movie, which is what this is, that has some self-awareness, a capacity to feel things, communicate those feelings, and also has a different interpretation of alcoholism. My gosh, I feel like we have an advance in our perceptions about alcoholism since the 1950s. It was a bloody mess. It was I have to say, Trisha, from just watching the trailers of that movie, I would have told you without seeing the movie if this is not a movie you would have enjoyed. I cannot I mean, believe you pointed up money to see it. This was not going to be your movie. Why? Why? I needed you call. I need you to call me and tell me that because I saw this movie and I was like, oh my god, you know what? Completely transformed. She looks mm-hmm. amazing. I want to go in, and when she hits that high note, I was like, yes. But it was not. You know what? And we can take this offline, right? But I, I know for. <laughs> I sat through that trailer and I sat in the theater. And I was like, oh no. Mm-mm-mm-mm. And so when you posted on Facebook that you had seen it and didn't like it, I was like, well, bitch, of course you didn't like it. That was not well, your going to be your movie. Can I ask you two a question? So I have not seen it, and nor have I seen any of the other A Star is Born movies. But mm-hmm. have either of you seen the pre- any of the previous ones? Wasn't it? Um, not- I think I saw the Barbara Streisand. Barbara Streisand? No, so did, I'm just curious. Did you like that? No, um, I don't. This is completely. It should it be said. It's not. A, this is not a remake. It's a completely different film along the same theme. But no, the film is completely it a remake, different. They're calling it a remake. It's though. not though, which is interesting. I mean, did you Gaga see the and her people say it's not a remake? Well, maybe you know. Sometimes they say those things. I don't know unless I've seen them all because sometimes they say it's not a remake to get them out of the the, the comparison business. But it could very well or, be. Or the royalty business. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so there could be lots of reasons for that. But yeah, I mean, I'm, but I'm prepared. My sister said to me, she's like, you are crazy. I'm just reading positive reviews left and right. And I was like, listen, I'm fine being a part of the minority. Okay. I, was turned, I was turned off from the trailer, like real quick, then we'll move on. I was turned off from the trailer when he, he, he's like, oh, have you ever tried writing anything? And she's like, usually I don't. Writing thing because I get turned down for the way that I look, and I'm like, bitch, <laughs> bitch. <laughs> okay, yeah, I get it, Stephanie Germanata. You don't look like Cameron Diaz, but stop the. Come on, yeah. Like I'm supposed to believe that you're ugly. Yeah, that's that a good point. That you can't be made marketable. That's what turned me off in the movie immediately. I was like, so this is a movie 
where I'm just supposed to believe things that are said and not actually experience what's happening on the screen. I was oh like, my I don't God, that's that. exactly the movie. It is exactly. And there's also, let me just say, like, and how you didn't see that from the trailer. I know, I'm so sorry. <laughs> but can I just say, there's also this weird hint of like, mm, I want to call it like, anti-pop, anti, like a little bit of a racist element. Like there's a point in the movie where she has dancers and there was this sense of like, if you have dancers and you're a singer, then you're inauthentic. They were really writing that line of like singer, songwriter, white art artist being more authentic than a certain other type of artist. And I was like, motherfucker, if you were so authentic, you wouldn't be drunk every weekend. Oh my so- God. <laughs> like, I mean, I- you know, I think, there was just something- I think that construction is for Gaga herself, right? So she's trying Maybe. to introduce herself to a new audience for this. Whatever. It's, like, <laughs> yes. it's sort of like a, a new Rye origin tale. Um, mm-hmm. It also positions not the character, but Lady Gaga herself as a singer-songwriter type, which nothing against Gaga, but she wants us all to believe this after Bitch shows up to award show in an egg and refuses <laughs> to talk to anybody. And she's in a meat dress. She's wearing dental floss. She's yeah. got sunglasses made out of, you know, look, out of cigarettes. Look, she is a brilliant businesswoman. She it's knows a re-brand. what she's doing it's there. A re-brand. Yeah, I mean, you know, this, is, this, is Madonna's, this is Madonna's live to tell moment all over again. But right. not even. Except not that Gaga even. can sing. Yeah, but you know, she, exactly. She, but she, you know she, what? She, but you know what? I think this is true. I think the intention is to have not um, Madonna's career, but maybe like a Streisand-like career in movies. I think she wants to transition and to be taken seriously in a different space. So yeah, there was a lot of that going on. So I was watching the movie with a serious side eye. So, but go ahead and enjoy it, y'all. I'm just saying. I'm Everyone gonna don't bother. Stop I it. There are going to be people who enjoy it, though. Oh, my God. It's so funny. You know, I was sitting next to this couple. I feel so bad about it. But I know I must have been sighing a few times. And she was crying. And I was like... I- <laughs> I'm, like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that you're touched by this. And I'm like, <gasps> <laughs> all right, I'm going to keep my recommendation short since you two took up all the time. Uh, very rarely do I recommend something I'm listening to. And this is going to seem like out there, but like Cher released an album of ABBA covers. I don't love ABBA. I don't love their music. I didn't love Mamma Mia, mm-hmm. but I love Cher. And you know what? This it, it's just good. It's fun to put on the background and bop your head to it. And Cher has an instantly recognizable voice. Despite me not liking ABBA's music, I'm enjoying this album a lot. And I was reflecting on the fact that like Cher has been famous my entire life. Like I remember being very little uh, on the floor of my living room watching repeats of the Sunny and Cher Sunny and Cher, baby. Sunny and Cher. On a giant TV, which was a piece of furniture in my house. Like it, she's been famous for a very long time and just – there's something about her voice that's just comforting to me when I hear it because I've heard it forever. And I was just reflecting on that as I was like, oh, I, I typically don't like listening to music in the background unless it's instrumental. Either I'm actively listening or it's like it's an opera or it's classical or something like that. But like I've just been having this in the background. And it's just been, I don't know, it's been giving me a moment. So, so, you're, so you're recommending Cher as background music? Uh, oh, boy, that sounded <laughs> shady. I'm recommending Ava as background music. Yes. And I'm recommending Cher as fold share. You know what? In a more positive like fold share into your life. Good. I like that. And if that's in the foreground, the background, it doesn't matter. Just fold share into your life. And you can be her new publicist. That was beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) Share. Um call me share. 
buy her new album <laughs> on Amazon. Use offer code outrageous uh, to get exactly zero percent off. <laughs> Yo, that's the show, everybody. Uh, I'm try. Uh, I'm so happy to talk to you all. I was uh, away for a long weekend, and now I'm jumping on a plane right now. And uh, you guys are great. I just want to say that. So much fun. So much fun. It was fun. Right now. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.